Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I always enjoyed summer camp when I was in Boy Scouts. I did not, however, enjoy the swim test at the beginning of summer camp each year. I was never the greatest swimmer, but was comfortable in the water. I could float and I could get around just fine, but my swimming technique had no real strategy other than just staying above the water. I never liked the test because it was performed in large groups and everyone watched you, or at least it felt like everybody was watching you. All the campers would sit on the beach, while those up next for the test would walk out onto the swimming dock. It was like a big rectangular structure in the lake. At the sound of the whistle, we would jump into the water and swim laps. The number of laps that you could swim determined what permission you had for swimming during the week, whether it was just going to be wading along the shore of the lake or being allowed into the various sections ever deeper in the swimming area or even out to the platform further out into the lake. If you were trying to earn the camp award, the weekly award, you also had to swim the number of laps according to the level of the award that you're trying for. So first years would have a certain amount of, of laps they had to swim. Second years would have another amount of laps they had to swim all the way up to year five. And I remember for my fifth year, uh, when the most laps were needed for the camp award, uh, the test went okay, but it wasn't the most fun. And uh, I remember jumping into the water and for the fifth year, you had to jump in at the deepest part of the dock. I have no idea how deep it was, but I know that I went down into the water and down into the water for a lot longer than I expected to go down in the water. And then I started to slowly float back up. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me to maybe try to move my arms and start swimming up. I just, I was used to jumping in and letting my body rise to the surface. When my head poked up above the water, the lifeguard mentioned, he was actually standing on the dock right next to where I was. He mentioned that he was glad to see me and I was starting to make him a little nervous having been below for so long. I told him I was fine. It's just that I do things my own way and I'm a slow swimmer and the lifeguard, well, he decided to walk alongside me the whole swimming test. And the entire time he was asking me, hey, do you want to take a break? I'm like, no, I'm okay. Are you sure you don't want to take a break? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm okay. Uh, maybe you could come back and try this test later in the week. It seems like you're kind of tired. And no, I'm fine. I, I just need to get this done. Uh, and, and I finished the test just fine, perhaps uh, quite a bit slower than they were planning for, but I did it. Looking back, I realized how important those swimming tests were. It was how the lifeguards judged your safety level for swimming in the lake. But the swimming tests were also an eye-opener for zealous Boy Scouts. A kid might feel like he could take the mile swim challenge later in the week until he started the week with the swim test. Jumping in the lake and swimming a lap or two off the dock could give a younger scout a very clear picture of their ability or lack of ability to swim, and perhaps they decide to spend the week increasing that ability. This is what tests do. They reveal us to ourselves. When we are tested, we learn about who we are, and how much we have grown, and how much we need to grow. And so today we're going to read a story in which Jesus tests his disciples. I mean, the text we're going to read literally says, Jesus said this to him, meaning Philip, for he said this to him to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Why a test? Why does Jesus test Philip and the rest of the disciples? Well, why does God test us? I would say this, God tests us so that we can see and understand ourselves clearly that we might respond to God rightly in return. 
So on the verge of producing a tremendous miracle, one of the most, one that is reported in all four of the Gospels, some people would say it's one of the most uh, uh, tremendous, uh, beautiful miracles that Jesus performs, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes that moment, that opportunity, to put his disciples and us to the test. From this test, Jesus desires us to know that he is the bread of life. And he desires us to trust in his provision and to act confidently under his authority and to join with him in feeding the crowd. So he's testing us, but he wants us to know that he's the bread of life, to trust in his provision, to act confidently under his authority and to join with him in feeding the crowd. So let's go ahead and read the text. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which was the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to, to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This story is best remembered as a fantastic miracle of producing food for many out of just a little bit. And as a child, I always pictured Jesus giving thanks over the bread and then the bread just sort of spilling out almost, I guess in my child's mind, the word I would use is magically, but miraculously out of his hands, just loads of bread pouring out of his hands into mounds and mounds of food. That's just how I saw it as a kid. It was a, a tremendous, fantastic miracle. But it's a big miracle for a big crowd. The text tells us the crowd is of large side. Verse 2 actually says it's not just a crowd, but a large crowd. And again, as a child, I tried to picture a crowd of 5,000 people, but I had no ability to picture such a group of people. In college, my Bible professors highlighted that when a text tells us there were 5,000 men or so many men, that women and children were not counted in that number. And so... So this was just a standard way of counting a group. Count the men. And as a rule, you could multiply that number by three or four to arrive at the true size of the crowd, including the uncounted women and children. So it's likely, very possible, that this group was actually 
a number closer to 15,000 or 20,000 inside because the text tells us there were 5,000 men there seated on the grass. So uh, 15 to 20,000, 20,000 is even harder to visualize, uh, though you know many of our convention centers or sports arenas today could come to your mind. The, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets, their hockey team, that arena seats 20,000 people. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the basketball team, their arena seats just a little over 20,000 people. Uh, 20,000 people, that's about half the population of the city of Delaware. This is a lot of people. This is a crushing amount of people. And they were following Jesus because of the signs that he was performing on the sick. That's what the text tells us. They were attracted to Jesus' power, and they were attracted to his ability to meet their most visible needs. So now, picture Jesus and his disciples sitting on a mountainside looking down, and there's fifteen to 20,000 people down there. And then Jesus turns to Philip and says, Hey, where are we going to go buy bread to, so that these people can eat? Uh-huh. No, that that's right. Where are we going to get that bread, Jesus? I can I can understand Philip's response. If we today were asked were tasked with feeding lunch, you know, after Sunday morning service, if we were tasked with feeding lunch to half of our town, the city of Delaware, uh with no planning and no preparation ahead of time, uh I I think well, if you just think of a task, feed 20,000 people, no plan, no preparation. I'm going to guess there's somebody out there listening to this trying to figure out how they would do that, and their stress level is going up. Poor Philip. Why on earth did Jesus ask Philip this question? He's testing him, right? That's what we're told. We also know that Philip is a native to this area. He would know the capacity, or he would have an idea of what the bakeries and markets could could do and how they could provide provide food. And and also remember, when Philip first encountered Jesus, he made big claims about who he thought Jesus was. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 44 through 45, we read these words. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip makes big claims about Jesus. He says, he's the one that Moses wrote about. He's the one we've been looking for. And so now Jesus is putting Philip to the test. Does Philip understand what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that Moses wrote about? And Jesus is putting all of his disciples and even the crowd to the test. And this passage presents us with all kinds of responses that we can have when Jesus tests us. And, and I just want to break down some of the responses. We've started looking at them a little bit. But, you know, one group that responds to the test of Jesus is obviously the disciples. You know, most of them, we don't hear about the response at all. But we get Philip and we get Andrew. And Philip, he seems to see the impossibility of Jesus' request. He can, he can only think in terms of, well, where are we going to get the food? How are we going to get the food? How are we going to pay for it? To Philip, the task seems impossible. He says, even with 200 denarii, that's 200 days of pay. So a, a denarius was a silver coin that would be used to pay a, a working man 
their full day's wage. So he says with 200 days of pay, we wouldn't have a money. We wouldn't have enough money to, to buy more than a mouthful per person. And and Andrew's sitting there, and he had another one of the disciples, and, and he's looking around, and maybe he sees it as a joke. He just sees the lack of resources they have to accomplish what Jesus is asking. And he says, look, we've got this boy over here, and he, he's got five loaves of bread and two fish. Let's see how far that goes, Jesus. <laughs> uh, maybe he's making a joke. Maybe he's just saying, yeah, this is impossible. I suspect many of us can be like Philip and Andrew when God asks us to do something that we think is uh, difficult. We often, as a first step, assess our own ability and our own resources to do what God asks. And that's not what God asks us to do. He asks us, as our first step, to say, I will trust you. He does ask us to assess what we have and, and our abilities and talents and gifts, but the first thing he asks us to do is to walk in faith. So the disciples, they see a situation, they see it as impossible, and they're, they're struggling with it. And yet the crowd, the crowd's another group that experienced a test in this passage. The test they experience is their hunger, their physical need. Uh, and I also think uh, many people respond like the crowd does. They would say, well, Jesus meets my need, and uh, and then we don't let Jesus go any deeper than just that immediate, out, you know, I was hungry and I got fed. And we don't let him further into our life to address the real problems and the real struggles of our lives. We, we like skin-deep faith instead of faith that pierces our heart. The crowd enjoys the fruit of Jesus' miracle. Everybody gets their fill. But ultimately, the crowd fails because they see Jesus as the prophet. They say, yeah, he is the one. He's the prophet. But they don't understand what it means to say that he's their savior. They even try to make him king, and they want Jesus to be the king their way. But they fail to see that he's already the king of kings. They fail to see that Jesus is offering them bread that they have not yet tasted. They enjoyed the barley loaves, but they aren't seeing that Jesus is the bread of life. Because that's what he says later in John chapter 6, same chapter, when he's ridiculing the crowd. Jesus is calling them out for only wanting physical bread. He, he eventually says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then a third response in the passage is that little boy. We could go on and on about the boy. I've heard pastors that have done that. They talk about the boy's response. But let's just say this. In truth, we're not really sure about the little boy's thoughts. But we do know that he's willing to entrust his lunch to Jesus, however far it will go to feed all the people. For the boy, it's enough that he can say here to Jesus, take, my, take what I have. I know you can make this work. And Jesus is asking us to be like that little boy. Take what I have. Make it work, Jesus. I will trust that you can do this. Jesus is testing his disciples. He's testing us. And he tests us so that we can see and understand ourselves clearly, that we may respond to him rightly. And so here are some of the responses, some of the things that we need to understand in this feeding of the 5,000, the test, that the things that come out of it that we need to grow in. And the first one is that we need to know Jesus as the bread of life. Not just the Jesus who provides in a moment of need, but the Jesus who is the bread of life. 
There's a difference there. And too many people address Jesus as, Lord, I'm in trouble right now. Can you help me get me out of this problem right now? My car is broken down, Lord. I don't know how it's going to get fixed. Fix the car, Lord. We see him as a fix-it man instead of the source of life. See, you can know the name of Jesus, but not let his name truly rule in your life. And the crowd, they know the right title of Jesus. They call him the prophet that Moses wrote about but they don't know him or what that title actually means. They, they recognize the significance of the moment, but they misinterpret it. And they misinterpret the meaning of Jesus being the prophet for their lives. They need to see him not as the giver of bread, but as the bread of life itself. And, and too often we see Jesus as, well, the giver of bread, the fix-it man, instead of the bread of life himself. This is one of the hard challenges of John chapter 6. If you read the whole chapter, the bread is all throughout that whole chapter. We don't have enough time today to talk about all the places where it talks about bread. But something's really interesting about John chapter 6. We started our text today, it said a very large crowd. And we think, we we know 5,000 men for sure, and we project possibly 20,000 people plus the disciples are all gathered around Jesus. You know how many people are with Jesus at the end of John chapter 6? 12. Everybody else leaves. Because as everybody else hears about what it means to have Jesus be the bread of life, and they're having trouble taking that in and understanding him being the bread of life, they abandon him. Everybody has their idea of who Jesus is, but they're not willing to comprehend what it really means that he's the bread of life. When he says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. See, we have an idea of what we want from Jesus, and he knows what we need. I I heard this quote uh, a couple weeks ago. I really think it's pretty great. Some people believe that being a Christian means that you get to be a better version of yourself. No, it means we become less like ourselves and more like Christ. I mean, how many people do you know go to church? Maybe you go to church to try to be a better version of yourself. But that's not what Jesus is offering as a bread of life. He is offering for us to become more like Christ. Knowing Jesus means that we become a changed people. So first thing that we get take, take away from being tested by Christ in this passage, that we understand him as the bread of life. Second thing from this passage is that we are to trust in Jesus's provision. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples immediately take stock of the crowd and their own resources. You know, Jesus says to Philip, how are we going to feed these people? Where are we going to get the food? And, and so he's immediately looking around going, ah, oh, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources to feed the crowd. Testing like this reveals whether or not we are willing to trust God's provision or simply try to trust our own ability. And part of God's provision are his promises. And so I want to take a minute or two here and just mention some of God's promises. One promise we have in the Bible is God will never leave you from Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. A second promise from the word of God. God will protect you from the enemy, Satan. From 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. A third promise. God will give you strength. Isaiah 40, 
Verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on the, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A fourth promise, last one we'll look at here, is God will forgive your sin. It's in 1 John 1, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not that our sins are untouchable and unforgivable. If we confess our sins and seek that, he will forgive us. We have promises from God, and we are being asked here to not trust in our abilities, but to trust in God's provision. Thirdly, from this passage, we are being told to act under God's and under Jesus' authority. The disciples' authority, you, you can look at this passage, there's a contrast between the disciples' authority and Jesus' authority. One of those has limits and one of them has no limits at all. You know, the disciples' position, uh, they, they could operate by what they could see, by their knowledge, by their ability, their assessment of the situation. They, they looked at all those things and said, you know, we can't feed the crowd, we're limited. We don't have the authority. And when Jesus asked them to sit down the people, they then had to decide again, do we go from human perspective? Because look, we don't have the ability to feed these people. Jesus tells us to sit them down. Are we just setting up for failure here? What if we get them all sat down and then there's nothing to give them? I mean, this is going to look bad. We'll be embarrassed. It's, it might damage the message that Jesus is trying to give. There's, there's this human perspective, but if you operate under the authority of Jesus, it's very different. You see, the disciples had no authority to say to everybody, hey, go sit down, Jesus is going to provide food for you. They had no authority to do that unless they operate under Jesus' authority. You know, if, if you had just been Philip or Andrew or Peter asking the crowd to sit down, and, they, and Philip and Andrew and Peter weren't related to Jesus anyway, they weren't disciples of Jesus, the crowd wouldn't have listened to them. But because those disciples were under the authority of Jesus, they were able to accomplish the task. And then the miracle happened. Perhaps you've been trying to live your life by your authority. And it's not going to work. Because you have limits. And for some of us this year, 2020, has shown us those limits. For some of us, we are scared because we've already reached our limits. And now we're in what seems to be an impossible situation. But that's if we trust our authority. This story tells us if if we want to have life and life to the full, we must trust in Jesus's authority. To Philip, feeding 5,000 people seemed impossible. It was a situation where Philip's solutions could not answer the need. It's an authority issue. And, you know, I believe our church, you know, Valley View Friends Church, I believe the American church is at one of those moments where we look around and, and and see the situation we're in, and it feels like an impossible moment right now. Our traditional methods of ministry are very good, but because of the coronavirus, we're very limited right now. And at this moment, that we feel most limited because our, our ministry practices are, are, are not effective because of social distancing and all that, at that same time, our community has greater need than ever. It feels like an impossible situation. It's like a crowd at the mountain looking up at Jesus. Only today, people are not so confident in the church as the crowd was in Jesus when he fed the 5,000. Because today, people are stressed and tired and at the end of their rope. Maybe today, they're jobless or you're worried about your job or 
you're concerned about the pandemic, or you're concerned about the economy crashing, you're concerned about race relations, you're concerned about losing our history or our homeland, you're concerned about losing our voice or, or never being heard at all, or maybe you're concerned about elections or concerned about your kids and, and how they're growing up, what impact this is going to have on them and what the school year might look like this year. And, and, and some of, for some of you this year, if part of your life was under pressure before 2020 happened, it's infinitely more difficult now. And when you stack all those things together, you start to hear the hunger of the crowd, don't you? And church, more of us are part of the crowd than we would like to admit. Perhaps God is testing us and already has in mind what he wants us to do. And it's up to us to be like that little boy in the story, allowing Jesus to use his lunch to miraculously feed the crowd. So what's the church to do right now? There's a lot for the church to do. I can't articulate it all right now. But I do think we need to speak to fear or against fear. We need to address it. Not by disregarding fear or discrediting it or just pretending it's not there. But we need to displace fear, because this, this culture is full of fear right now, with confidence in Christ. First John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We need to learn to trust in God's provision instead of our own. You know, just like we've been talking about it. This is, a, this is a year we're being tried and tested in church. We need to trust in God's provision instead of our own. It is, it's wise to assess our condition and see our resources and abilities, but we do not set our face by our condition and our resources and our abilities. And we need to remember, church, that we are to operate under an authority that is Jesus' authority instead of our own authority. And what I mean by that, well, we've talked about it, but I just want to expand that a little bit and remind you that Jesus' authority, as I read it in the Bible, it is a quiet, sure, strong authority. It has a character that's specific and purpose. Uh, and we don't often operate with that kind of authority. Uh, it's an authority that doesn't try to win with a gotcha moment. It doesn't try to outshout or outanger or, or humiliate others. God and his authority, he is in the restoration business. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We operate under God's authority, and that means we are in the game of getting everybody to heaven as possible, as many people to heaven as possible. That's the authority we operate under. I'm not trying to to, to defend how we feel or if we're right or not or you know we're get everybody's getting all kinds of arguments about little issues around the country and in our communities it's really about we know the way to heaven and we want to see as many people get to heaven as possible and the last thing i say church that we need to do we need to look up and around and see the ways that god is feeding the crowd because the crowd's hungry, and we've still got a calling to go and minister. And one way that's been on my mind as a pastor, and I know I'm behind the game on this one. I, I, we should have been well ahead of this, but we're behind. 
I know that one way that God is feeding the crowd right now is through, and I, I don't know a better term for it than digital discipleship. I've been really slow to want to put together online options and resources for worship at Valley View. Uh, the season we are in has shown more than ever that our community often connects first digitally. Even, even without the coronavirus, we're in a culture where people look us up on Facebook and they look at your website and they, they try to figure out information online first before they come through the doorway. So I want to say be ready in the coming weeks and months as we try to figure out how to minister in a meaningful way online. This is not a replacement for what we do in person, but it's realizing that many hungry people are looking for spiritual food online and we have a calling to go and feed the crowd there. It might mean recording some videos, doing some live question and answer discussions, holding online prayer meetings, creating a library of resources that can serve as an on-ramp into God's kingdom and into the churches. There's a whole lot of things we can do, and we're not, I'm not sure what all it's going to look like yet, but I know we've got to do it. And there'll be a time when I'll come to you and say, hey, can you help me figure this out? And I hope that you'll want to step out like the little boy in the story and say, yeah, I may not know everything, but I'm willing to try because I know God wants us to do this. So whenever you're faced with an impossible situation, remember that what is impossible to us is not impossible to God. We need to trust in God's provision. We need to, to live with God's authority and be willing to answer when God tests us with a task that seems bigger than we are. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, Father God, I first want to pray for the person right now who's listening, who is hungry. That no matter what they do in life, they are unsatisfied and empty. And I pray right now that they would be willing to receive Jesus and to get their fill of the bread of life. Lord, I also pray for our church, that as you present us with new ministry opportunities, we would be willing to say yes, instead of say, I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if we have the resources. We want to see people get to heaven. We want to see people call Jesus Lord and Savior. And we want to help in the work of sharing Jesus with others. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go with Jesus.